0: These changing weather conditions in the state have led to not only crisis, but also have led to a crisis in our forest health. And this is all compounded by a legacy of bad policy decisions made over a century ago that we're still trying to recover from.
1: This is Sarah. And Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We're going to spend some time on a question that we get all the time today. What is actually in the party platforms? We're going to talk Republicans and Democrats, the differences between the two platforms. We are also going to spend some time on the tragic news of the weekend Jacob Blake and Trayford Pellerin. We're going to talk with our friend Jessica Morse about the wildfires in California. Lots to get to in today's episode. But first, we want to invite you to spend some time observing the parties in action. We did this last week for the Democratic National Convention. It was super fun. We're going to do it this week for the Republicans. So please join us Thursday night on Hot Mike. We will watch the convention together. We'll talk about whatever is on your mind as you're able to chat back with us. You can talk with each other. It's a great way to connect with other listeners in the Pantsuit Politics community. So check our socials and the show notes for more information. And we hope to see you there. As many of us
2: watched the wildfires unfold across California, we knew there was just one person we wanted to talk to. This is the second worst wildfire in California's history. And we wanted to hear from Jessica Morse. Now, Jessica came on our show when she ran for election to the U.S. House of Representatives for California's fourth congressional district. She is smart. She is thoughtful. She is empathetic. And now she is the deputy secretary for forest stewardship in California and we wanted to hear from someone who is completely invested in California and California's future and on the ground tackling this natural disaster. So here is Jessica Morse.
1: Jessica, your state is on fire. Talk to us about the current state of things. How can we more precisely say it than California is on fire?
0: I mean, I think you summed it up pretty neatly there um, and succinctly. I mean, basically, One in four Californians live in a high-fire risk area. And the other day, the governor came out and said, everyone should have a go-bag. Everyone should be prepared to evacuate. Everyone is at fire risk. Right now, um, what we've had in the last week are 13,000 lightning strikes. And just for context, lightning of the severity in California is extremely rare. The last time we had what's called a lightning siege was 2008. And before that, it was 1987. So, and this is significantly larger than anything we faced. Um, And so, 13,000 lightning strikes ignited 625 fires throughout the state. So, it's a wide geographic area. It's a lot of fires that have been um, butting up against communities. We right now have 240,000 people evacuated, and a number of these fires, uh, about two dozen of them, are really significant fires, putting people at risk, and. We have currently um, two of the largest fires in state history. The, the second and third largest fire in state history are burning simultaneously right now. So what that has done is it's really overwhelmed our um, our forces and our equipment to put out and contain these fires. And, um, and we're still in the middle. Of, we're not actually out of the woods yet. We're still in the middle of Red flag warnings. So, we are expecting another round of lightning from these tropical storms um, to be pushing up here through Tuesday morning. So, we could have even more ignitions. We had 10 new fire starts just last night. So, we are um, at max capacity. This is the result of climate change, um, and the impacts are devastating. You know, we have uh, 240,000 people evacuated during a pandemic, we have over 1.2 million acres burned. Right. That's larger than U.S. states. That's larger than Rhode Island. We have lost over twelve hundred structures. And um, tragically, these fires have now taken seven lives. So we are seeing a real impact. It's a serious situation. And compounding it all is that we have smoke throughout the state. Um, And this wildfire smoke is very um, dangerous uh, for prolonged impact, especially for seniors. They have higher instances of cardiac arrest and stroke um, after prolonged exposure to wildfire. And we also have, there's data that shows trends of increased cases of influenza um, months after a wildfire. And so... There's potential for um, larger impact from COVID because a prolonged exposure to wildfire smoke will actually lower your, your immune system. So we are facing compounding crises here, um, and it is a real challenge that we're up against. Um, our, we have, are so grateful that firefighters throughout the state are responding. Um, it is all hands on deck like over twelve thousand fire personnel have um, are on these fires right now as we speak, and they are working tirelessly and around the clock to keep people safe. Jessica. It feels like unfortunately, we're not the first country to tackle
2: this type of natural disaster. And I'm seeing a lot of comparisons to Australia. And I'm just wondering, are you? What have you guys learned from Australia? What can they offer as far as insight and lessons and how to tackle this type of problem?
0: Well, I think the challenge is we know what to do. It's a matter of scaling it to the, the climate change crisis that we're facing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, because what you see is that when you when you hit a certain scale, it overwhelms the capacity of any system. Um, that's what we saw in Australia and what we're seeing here. What is interesting is that some of our mitigation efforts um, are paying off. We have a lot fewer um, loss of homes and loss of life from the 2008 lightning strikes, even though those were less extensive. Um, and it's because our we have better equipment and the community is better prepared. Fire resilience really happens on three fronts. And I like to think of them as like a concentric circles. So you have that innermost circle is the community. That's where you're really hardening homes against wildfires so that they can withstand a fire if it goes through. That's where you're building defensible space around your home, having safe um, places for communities to shelter and evacuation routes out. Um, So that's defending against the worst case scenario of a fire coming through your community. The next layer is the wildland urban interface. That's where you're building strategic fuel breaks, these kind of thin strips of forest, where firefighters can stage their equipment and take a stand against a fire. If it's coming in, it it gives them a space to have an area that's less hot um, for them to be able to then hold a fire line um, and prevent that fire from ever entering that community. And then the last layer is really this landscape scale approach where you are actually actively working to restore the natural density of forest um, and And to ensure that you're not getting these catastrophic fuel loads where the fires are getting so hot that they're creating their own weather systems and creating, as we saw this week, fire tornadoes.
1: What does California need right now from the rest of the country?
0: Individuals can certainly help um, by giving donations to disaster assistance through the Red Cross or through community foundations. Um, And the Red Cross is currently trying to put as many people as possible in hotel rooms. um, Because of the COVID outbreak, we're also leaning on shelters. But um, the more assistance and and cash donations we get through the Red Cross is going to be critical community foundations, um, which you can find on the, um, if you go onto Twitter of the Office of the Governor, um, you can find a list of approved community foundations. These are local by county that really are going to help get funds to the local nonprofits that are going to do the long-term recovery effort. Um, But beyond that, what we have been needing is this federal assistance. And so we're so grateful that the federal disaster assistance is finally coming through because it allows us to open up funding for more firefighters. We've been seeing states and other nations around the world responding by sending firefighters um, in to us and new engines and equipment to help us actually tackle these fires um, head on and put the manpower and machinery on it that's needed to help um, hit containment lines. So, But I think for individuals, really um, supporting the disaster assistance is crucial right now because so many people are out of their homes. And what's tragic is that some people are going, um, some people evacuated and went to state parks, and now those state parks um, are under evacuation orders, and so people are finding themselves getting moved around the state. And so finding safe places for people to shelter um, in hotel rooms and shelters is going to be really crucial. So everybody wants to help. And
2: I think that information is so key. But what do you think everybody misunderstands about this crisis? Like the the majority of America that doesn't live in California. Well, actually, yeah. I don't know if you're
0: really close to the majority of America living inside of America in California, but you know what I mean. <laughs> it's all 40 million of us. Yeah. Um, we have a good chunk of the, of the country um, and we're all under fire threat. But I think even here, um, there's not clear understanding about how we got here. And I think understanding the history of fire in California is really crucial to understanding this crisis and how to solve it. So what we have going on right now are the confluence of two crises. One is climate change. I mean, just clearly climate change, right? We have longer, hotter, drier summers um, and uh, drier winters, um, less rainfall, less snowpack, What that means is that our vegetation dries out earlier. We had this comes on the tail of a historic heat wave we recently recorded what's um, assumed to be the hottest temperature on record um, the week before last in California, 130 degrees in Death Valley, um, largest hottest temperature in the Earth's record. Right? I mean, just pause and consider that this is climate change, and again, these lightning strikes are climate change, and um, and and so what we are seeing is these changing weather conditions in the state have led to not only crisis, but also have led to a crisis in our forest health. And this is all compounded by a legacy of bad policy decisions made over a century ago that we're still trying to recover from. What I find very compelling, as somebody who works on forests day in, day out, is how we got here you know when when the forest service was established in 1905 it was this radical concept of building up a uh, public land protected land and the congress of the day was not thrilled with this idea um it did not fall in line with the Um, concept of timber uh, of, you know, mass harvesting of timber and construction and building and mineral extraction. Um, And so the concept of protecting public lands was really rare. And so even though the Forest Service was established, the Congress refused to fund it. And then you had catastrophic fires in the West around 1910. And Teddy Roosevelt and Gifford Pinchot made a strategic decision. They decided to orient the Forest Service around fire suppression, which was the political fear. These wildfires were the political fear of the day. And Congress agreed to fund the Forest Service if they became a fire suppression agency. Now, that sounds innocuous, but the trade off was that it eliminated the natural fire regime from California's landscape and ecology. Native Americans had been managing California with, with natural fire for millennia, and our ecology is adapted to it. So many of our native plants require a low-burning, low-degree fire to actually germinate their seeds and to thin out the undergrowth. Our Most of our forests in California are designed around having fire come through at low temperatures every um, 10 to 15 years. That's the fire return interval. And by suppressing that fire for 90 years, suddenly you have 90 years of fuel buildup and you end up with fires when you get an ignition, it is hot, it is catastrophic, it doesn't just clean out the undergrowth and germinate seeds, it destroys everything in its path. And these catastrophic fires that burn into the tree canopy, that burn the soil, that then enter communities, are compounding now with the climate crisis of hotter, longer, drier seasons and are resulting in year after year of breaking the records on biggest, largest, most catastrophic fires um, in the state's recorded history.
1: I think that's really helpful. I remember when the fires were burning in Australia and were consuming the news cycle that there was a lot of discussion about like, well, this isn't climate change. Fire is important to the ecology of Australia. And what I hear you saying is it's not like fire or no fire. It is about the level and the management of it. So what are your next steps as you think about this from a policy standpoint, like projecting past this current crisis as much as you can? What are you really focused on?
0: It's been really helpful here at the state because um, our governor has been really committed from day one to really tackling fire mitigation from the prevention side early on. You know this administration has you know is barely two years old, so we're um, just a couple years into our initial tackling of what needs to be a twenty-year plan. And so the governor on day one established an emergency before the emergency. That was his first act as governor when he took office, and asked the state, asked Cal Fire, um, our our fire agency, to. Um, build emergency fuel breaks. That's where I was talking about that wildland urban interface where you you help t- uh, you build these fuel breaks where firefighters can take a stand. And um, it was a Herculean effort and they did it within a year. And what's exciting about those is that um, some of them have been put into place. Some of them have intersected with fires we had at the end of last season at the beginning of this fire season um, and have have been an incredible tool in helping fires not get out of hand. And um, but the challenge is the scale of it. We have 33 million acres of forest land in California, 15 million acres are, um, are in need of, of management, they are in need of thinning and treatment to be fire resilient, to be able to return natural fire back to the landscape. And, and so that means you actually have to go in and do it, you know, often by hand. And so, for us to have achieved um, close, you know, we, our target is to treat a half a million acres a year. And we just signed an agreement with the federal government where they are committing to match our targets here in the state. Um, and, and together we should be able to start treating a million acres a year. And we were on pace in the state to actually hit that, hit our half a million acre target, uh, which was our goal is by 2025 to scale up to it. And we're, we were pretty close. Um, this year. And uh, then COVID hit and the budget crisis hit. And so suddenly, we went from having real resources to put behind this to um, having a big question mark in terms of what kind of revenue we were going to get in to be able to fund this. So we just signed an agreement with the federal government that um, it really outlines a joint strategy for um, fire resilience and forest health throughout the state. And what that does is it allows the largest landowner in the state, the federal government, they own 58% of California's forest land, private owners own 40% of it, and the state owns 3%. So this agreement allows the largest landowner in the state to be um, in lockstep with California in our strategy on on restoring forest health and creating a long-term regime of fire resilience.
1: We're so grateful for Jessica and her work and her leadership. Before we get into the party platforms, it is important to us to acknowledge that police officers in Kenosha, Wisconsin shot Jacob Blake multiple times in front of his children while he tried to enter a vehicle on Sunday. It's unclear at this point exactly what else happened as we sit here recording on Monday. He is critically injured at this time, and we are certainly sending out so much love to that community and to Jacob Blake and his family and hoping that he recovers well.
2: Also in Louisiana on Saturday, police shot and killed 31-year-old Trayford Pellerin outside of a convenience store. Police say that he was armed with a knife. Again, we're lacking lots of details. But communities across the United States are still dealing with police violence, and we're going to talk about that in more detail in the next section on the party platforms. Before we get to that, we are still celebrating the centennial of suffrage. And I wanted to share my conversation about this important anniversary with my grandmother, Betty Skidmore. Okay, I'm here with my Meemaw, better known as Betty Skidmore. Betty Skidmore, what year were you born? 1936. 1936. So women had the vote for 16 years. Did grandmother ever talk about suffrage? No,
3: I don't remember her ever talking about suffrage. I remember her, where she was born in nineteen and thirteen, so she was very small. Yeah. Really, by the time that it was enacted. Yeah. She uh, she talked a lot about some of her neighbors and friend women who let their husbands tell them how to vote, mm. which upset her and infuriated her in a way and. I, mean, I guess she thought they were just not too smart <laughs> or they would vote for it. The, they would do their own thing. you know. Yeah. And she used to talk about, I remember one story she told uh, about maybe one of her grandparents, maybe her grandparents, one of them said, I'm going to vote one way. One of them said, I'm going to vote the other. And the polling place was a few miles away. And they said, well, we'll just stay home <laughs> because we're going to counsel out each.
2: Oh, my gosh.
3: <laughs> others vote. So they didn't vote.
2: Oh, my gosh. So what does suffrage mean to you when you think about that we've had the vote for 100 years?
3: Honestly, I think we've had the vote for 100 years. We've been very, very slow about taking advantage of it. We should have a whole lot more women involved in government, you know, elected officials. I think we've given the men long enough to figure it out to make it uh, better than it is. And I think that it's uh, well, it's. Partially because women are so strung out with all their responsibilities other, other than just working. And I just read an a email thing today from a granddaughter who had posted something about uh, suffrage or about, uh, well, they were actually off on all kinds of subjects like equal pay and the disparity between incomes and responsibilities for family and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so, you know, I, that that whole subject uh, about women, you know, I, I know that a few years ago we controlled more money than the men. We don't take advantage of it. Mm. Uh, you know, we are half the population. We don't take advantage of it. We argue among ourselves. Mm. We don't support each other. I don't know how to fix that.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, and I think there are still some women who vote how their husbands learn
3: to vote? Absolutely. Do everything else their husbands tell them to do.
2: Yeah. Uh, you've been husbandless for how many years?
3: Since 1981.
2: How's the husband-free life? When you think about suffrage, nobody's telling you how to vote. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> One
3: of the few things we agreed on, though, we were both Democrats. Uh
2: huh.
3: I can't imagine that some man tell me what to do about anything.
2: <laughs> do you remember the first time you voted?
3: No, I remember. I remember registering. Uh, when you uh, when you were a senior, they would come to the school. People from the courthouse would come and register everybody who was 18. That was a really big day. You know, I remember that.
2: Do Are there any sort of moment elections you really remember voting in that stick out?
3: I remember how excited I was to vote for Kennedy. Yeah. I was excited to vote for Clinton. Both of them? No. <laughs> <laughs> I voted for but I wasn't excited about it. Uh I've never been able to figure out why the people who know her like you personally, have you know, been around her enough to know that she's a very caring, kind person, uh, open, honest and all those things. Why she comes across the way she does.
2: You don't think it's just because she's a woman in that position and no, a woman in that no, position would There's trigger just, that kind
3: of... No, I don't. There's something about her that just, um, well, I think she's changed over the years. Yeah. I think she became sort of, she, she came across as entitled mm-hmm.
2: to me. Yeah. Well, what was the last male politician you thought seemed entitled?
3: Oh, we've still got him.
2: <laughs> That's fair. Thinking, McConnell <laughs> yeah seriously are you thinking about this 100 year celebration like is there is there a positive aspect of it instead of just feeling sort of the heavy responsibility of maybe not taking full advantage of suffrage are you feel is there anything that makes you happy when you think about that we've had the vote for 100 years except for' just that we have the vote
3: well I have to think about how much better we are better off women are in the western world than they are in the Middle East now uh, uh-huh. that was one of the ways I always used to deal with uh, uh you know feelings of being de- depressed or let down or disappointed about something thinking hey you could be in saudi arabia mm-hmm. you know and get a grip because yeah gee we've so much ahead of them yeah those just poor women just now were allowed to drive a car if yeah. they had their husband's permission or the male figure in their family
2: right i like to just think about like still being a part of the story and you know those people the women that were fighting and sacrificing so much Talk about, you know, we feel overwhelmed with the problems we're trying to solve. They had to get power from the only people who could give it to them were people they were trying to convince to give up some power. You know what I mean? Like yeah. having to convince men to give you the right to vote, basically. Right.
3: You know? They weren't in any position to do it with bullets.
2: Yeah, right.
3: Uh, you know, they weren't physically strong enough. Um, I think what they actually did was just warm down. Like me, that women, that's the reason they're accused of being, you know, bitchy. Mm-hmm. Because you know, the only option you have is to wear them down.
2: Yeah, drip by drip. Well, thank you for talking suffrage with me. My pleasure. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest and you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot slash pantsuit. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth It makes it feel special Terms and conditions apply. Beth, when you said you wanted to talk in detail about the party platforms, I thought that was interesting because the Republican National Committee made some choices about their party platform this year. We're not really dealing with a new party platform. It's a party platform that doesn't even talk about the global pandemic we're in the middle of. Tell us how the Republican National Committee ended up with their current party platform.
1: Well, the current platform is from 2016. It went through a normal process, committee meetings and different people advocating for different policies and lots of wrangling and ultimately as much as there was a normal process in 2016 with anything (laughs) and ultimately (laughs) passage during the Republican National Convention that we attended in Cleveland. This year, the Republicans have been all over the place about where they're having a convention, who's coming, what type of convention it's going to be, because COVID-19 has forced a number of changes. I think there's been a lot of denial about the ability to Mm -hmm. have a normal convention, and that's pushed the people who actually have to pull this off into a really tight corner to make a production happen. And because of that, the RNC previously announced that they were not updating their platform. This week, because of press coverage about the fact that the RNC's 2016 platform contains lots of disparaging references to the president, because it's talking all about President Obama, the RNC has said, you know, the media is being dishonest in the way they're covering this. And the truth is, we fully support President Trump and his agenda for his second term. MAGA, moving on. And so we have this sort of Brief resolution from the RNC in full support of the president, otherwise confirming the 2016 platform and saying we will not entertain votes on a new platform at our convention. Anybody who makes a motion for a new platform will be considered out of order at our convention that is happening as we speak. The more I think about this and the
2: more I emotionally prepare myself to watch four nights of the Republican National Convention the more I realize that conventions are only manifestations of what's going on in the party themselves. And, you know, the Democratic Party is absolutely, as it often is, in the middle of shifts and debates. We're holding John Kasich and Bernie Sanders, we're holding people that the only thing they want is Medicare for all. And we have a nominee who doesn't support Medicare for all. So there's a lot going on there. And I think the Republican National Convention, as well as this whole platform, really, as it stood in 2016, and most certainly as just a recycle of 2016 here in 2020, is reflected that there isn't much of a party. There's only a cult of personality. It's only about Trump. This isn't going to be a convention filled with past presidents, past nominees future candidates, rising party stars, unless you count Donald Trump Jr. This is just one long primetime exercise to distract from the fact that this is a referendum on his leadership and we're in the middle of a recession and a global pandemic. And it's just like it feels like one manifestation of that over and over and over again.
1: All throughout the Republican platform from 2016, beginning with the opening dedication, there is an overwhelming amount of language about respect and appreciation for people who protect America from danger. So that's one theme. They've told us that another theme will be cancel culture, uh, which is what the president seems to be running on at least this week. There's no evidence of a cancel culture epidemic in the RNC 2016 platform, but that kind of makes sense because that's really evolved more over the last couple of years. They said they're going to talk about the economy and how the president is singularly capable of bringing us back from COVID-19. Certainly, the 2016 platform supports the the way that Donald Trump has managed the economy over the past four years. It talks about steep tax cuts, about the need to try to attract corporate investment in the United States, although he's been unsuccessful in doing that. We've actually had less investment in the United States during his term than in previous years. Um, But the way that he's talking about the economy is consistent with the platform. And then I think other than that, it's just going to be the Donald Trump show. And Mm -hmm. you saw hints of that in 2016 as the platform talked about needing to build the wall. And a lot of his campaign catchphrases were embedded in that platform. And so I don't think we are somewhere that was unforeseeable when you look at what was happening within the Republican Party in 2016. You know, a lot of what has actually unfolded in terms of the cruelty of this administration's policies toward transgender people, towards immigrants, towards women have shocked me. When I actually went through the document line by line, the seeds of it all were there. And so, Sarah, you've been talking about Jen Hatmaker's advice to look at the fruits of leadership. These seeds connect to the fruits. That's what I see.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: So, Beth, tell us about how the preambles
2: differed dramatically from each other you're going to go into a lot of detail on these platforms on patreon you did on monday night tonight and wednesday night so if you really want to deep dive in all to the in all these party particulars head on over to patreon but i do think the preambles are really
1: illustrative so what what do the preambles tell us about the parties Who wouldn't want that deep dive? (laughs) So the dedication from the Republican Party is to military and law enforcement. The Democrats begin with an acknowledgement that their convention is being held on indigenous lands and they pay respect to those people. And then in the preambles, we really see individualism versus collectivism. An America that is already amazing and perfect versus an America that's a work in progress. The first sentences of the Republican preamble are, we believe in American exceptionalism. We believe the United States of America is unlike any other nation on Earth. And it goes on from there that the Constitution is a uh, sacred that we don't want to alter it in any way, although as you read the platform, they suggest several constitutional amendments. Political freedom and economic freedom are inseparable, and people are better stewards of the country than the government. And then there is just a laundry list of all the ways that President Obama and Democrats are terrible. You do have to keep reminding yourself as you look at this document that it was written in a different time. Democrats, having written this last month, Talk about COVID 19 from the very beginning, and they begin with America is an idea, one that has endured and evolved through war and depression, prevailed over fascism and communism, and radiated hope to far distant corners of the earth. They talk about protest as the highest form of patriotism, that America's diversity is its greatest strength. And then we really go into how the Trump administration has failed the American people in so many ways. And this explicit reference to the Great Depression and what sounds like a new deal, Democrats being prepared to forge a new contract with the country.
2: Well, I mean, I think if you look at really that rugged individualism coming in with Ronald Reagan, who was dismantling the big government from f d r and certainly through the fifties and sixties, those preambles make a lot of sense to me and honestly if i'm if someone's asking me why you are a Democrat, that's going to be my answer because I think the government has a role to play in protecting the middle class of building financial security for the majority of Americans. I don't believe people pull themselves up by their bootstraps. I don't believe in rugged individualism like. Really, I mean, if we're talking really big picture stuff, you lay out those preambles. And to me, I'm like, yep, that's why I'm a Democrat. That's exactly why I'm a Democrat. And I'm sure there are Republicans that would feel the same way that would say an emphasis on law and order and individualism is, although sometimes I think, aren't those a little in conflict? Then that they're makes sense totally to in conflict. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, they're totally in conflict. And that's what, you know, again, one more reason why I'm going to my body's in a different boat. But, I, you know. I think that that appeal, because here's why I think the rugged individualism and the law and order go hand in hand, because it's not really about law and order. It's about a vehicle for fear. Put your you know, all that they're protecting us. Well, what's the assumption? There's something we need to be protected from. We need to be protected from criminals. We need to be protected from terrorists. We need to be protected, apparently not from a virus. But I think that's the the reason that individualism and the law and order go hand in hand, because it's not law and order, as in we all follow rules for the good of the, the group. It's we'll protect you because you're on the good side. And they, be it criminals in big Democratic cities, which is the new narrative, really playing upon some of the protests in Kenosha, Wisconsin this weekend. I've already been texted by family members with, why are Democrats just letting their cities fall apart? Forgetting, of course, that all this unrest and civil discord is during President Trump's administration. That's what drives me truly bananas, as if New York City is outside of the United States or Chicago or Kenosha, Wisconsin is some great metropolitan area that is like, I don't know, outside of quote unquote regular America. And you hear it, too, in the the protecting the suburbs and the, you know, I feel like law and order so often
1: is a vehicle for fear and a vehicle for tribalism. I think that's right. These are two fundamentally cultural documents. Mm hmm. The Republican platform is certainly a cultural document in saying, I mean, not even in very coded language. Hey, white America, middle class, particularly, but white America overall, the things that seem normal to you are what we think should be enshrined in the law. Mm -hmm. The things that were taught to you in Sunday school, because we're assuming that you're all Christians. We think should be enshrined in the law. I mean, the platform says things from 2016. The platform says things like we endorse school systems that teach the Bible as literature in high school classes. They talk in the platform about education as passing on a cultural identity. So it's not subtle. That's what the document is. And that's why some people are going to read it and rally around it, even though philosophically, There are not consistent threads of thought about what our government exists to do and not do. Its government is horrible in every way that it would that would involve investment in things that you don't like. And government is the ultimate sword and shield for everything that you think is normal and important. Right. And the Democrats platform is a cultural document in that it is bending over backwards in every sentence on every page to be as inclusive as possible, to use the 2020 language for every group to constantly appeal to a diverse group of human beings and show that they are working hard all the time to right past wrongs and to move the country in a direction that is more equitable. And I don't look at either of these documents and think, yeah, I just 100 percent feel good about every sentence in here. But it is very clear to me of those two visions, which one I want to be part of.
2: Now, I do want to give
1: a little bit of grace.
2: Okay, I'm not talking about the party platform and I'm certainly not talking about the party leadership, but I am talking to the people who hear that Republican preamble and it appeals to them. Richard Rohr, one of my favorite spiritual leaders, is doing a series in his email on order, disorder and reorder. This is like a real fundamental principle of his sort of religious philosophy, that the idea that we're born and we order ourselves and then we usually go through a trauma or some sort of process of uh, disorder where things fall apart and then we have a reorder and that's really where growth and self-awareness and connection can come. And at the end of this first email about reorder, so we're in the process after everything's kind of broken down, he says, "'Based on years of spiritual direction, I have observed that conservatives must let go of their illusion that they can order and control the world through religion, money, war, or politics.'" True release of control to God will show itself as compassion and generosity and less boundary keeping. Liberals, however, must surrender their skepticism of leadership, eldering, or authority and find what is good, healthy, and deeply true about foundational order. This will normally be experienced as a move toward humility and real community. And that second part really spoke to me because I think there is such a temptation to hear that preamble to, and to hear what I'm sure will be many many incendiary moments within the rnc considering the speaker list and the president himself and roll our eyes and think they're just this is just fear margarine but it is also i think speaks to a need for order and i think it is easy as liberals or progressives to dismiss that and i you know i think about Jonathan Haidt and The Righteous Mind and that that authority and respect for authority is a real moral value that some people hold and that some people prioritize over care and that doesn't make them bad people. And in a society where we are going to form as a community and a group, there does need to be some authority and there does need to be some foundation in order. I mean, listen, not to throw Portland under the bus, but We saw what happened like the people in that community were not happy with what happens when we create a little a little paradise where there's no rules and like there's endless stories of progressives in the 60s and 70s trying to start businesses or trying to start communes and there's no foundational order and it does spoiler alert it does not end well. And so there, you know, this balance, this idea that we have a two party system so that both of these moral values can come and balance each other. When I'm speaking about the Republican National Convention and even when I'm in a a very frustrated and deeply snarky place, it's because it's not good for anybody if one party is this deeply messed up and it is deeply messed up deeply messed up. There's a great political article we both read about the Republican meltdown. And, you know, it's just quote after quote of people within the Republican Party saying, all we do is like the only our only value is fighting. This one longtime senior congressional aide says owning the libs and pissing off the media. That's it. That's what we believe now. And look, that's not good for anybody. It's not good. Republicans It's not good for Democrats. It's not good for Americans. And I think when you look at these platforms like That's what's really upsetting to me is that I don't want any party, even the party I don't belong to, to be this deeply broken.
1: I think that's right. And I think we're spending a lot of time on the intros to the platforms because that's really what the role of president is about, more that guiding philosophy You know, you can go deep into the economic policies, for example, and I can find stuff in the Republican platform that I do agree with. And I can find places in the Democratic platform where I think, Lord, we could have every United States citizen working for the government and not get all this done. You know, it it is a much bigger vision of government than I'm comfortable with, even where I agree with the intention of the policy. And even where I totally disagree with the intention of Republican policies, there are some decent ideas here and there. The problem is, We treat those ideas as though they're the most important parts of the presidency. And the president ultimately has to be someone that you trust in that big picture orientation, because none of us sitting here today have any idea what will bubble up to the top of the president's priority list. So that's why, to me, this is an election where there are, you know, two trains, which one are you getting on? And it's less about the specifics of what's in there. I'm sure that there are lots of people in sort of the Sanders-Warren wing of the party for whom aspects of this platform are unacceptable. But the animating ethos of it, I think is very consistent with that progressive part of the party in terms of inclusivity, listening to people of different perspectives, ensuring that every has a voice at the table it goes so far out of its way to say that's where we are and i think on the republican side that orientation to there's a specific group of americans and their vision of life that we are serving and Mm -hmm. everybody else is on the other team and that's what animates this president and that's really as voters all we can know You know, I spent hours this weekend getting into the details because I love that stuff and I love talking about it on Patreon. But as a voter, like really the first few pages do tell you what the character and values of the people that are going into this election are and help you make your choice. Yeah,
2: that's what, you know, there's some analysis of the DNC that was really bugging me. And let me tell you, It was wide ranging where this was coming from because I heard it from Matt Iglesias, who's about as progressive as you get from Vox. And I heard it from the Wall Street Journal, which is, it was just really light on policy details. And I say it with that snarky voice because it really upset me. I'm like, give me a break, you guys. Give me a break. Do you think America's tuning in for the policy specifics of what's going to happen? And also, I just feel like, Anybody who's worked in media or government long enough know that's all well and good. Who knows what's gonna happen on day one? I just think that's such a silly and like almost deliberately obtuse way to criticize it. Because you know that's not what this is an infomercial, right? Like this is what we're about. And so to say like, oh well, we need all these policy details for how you're gonna get there just seems So short-sighted and empty to me.
1: Well, we also have no idea who's going to be in Congress, whoever Mm -hmm. wins the presidency. We have no idea. And how that person will think about the Congress is really important. There's a lot of language in the Republican platform that I was like, I will stand up and cheer for this language about how weak Congress has become and about how mm-hmm. we have started governing this country through executive order, and it's wrong. And they meant that as a dig at President Obama, but we're all here to testify that that's guys. gotten worse. You know, that <laughs> that trajectory has continued. And so we know how President Trump thinks about Congress. We don't need him to tell us. Bless everything. There is not a ton about executive orders in the Democratic platform. There is a lot about working with states a surprising lot about working with states. Things like universal pre-K for three and four year olds. There's explicit language about working state by state on how that program could be administered. You don't find a lot of that other than we wanna block grant everything in the Republican platform. Mm -hmm. The one place that I can think of where there was executive order language in the Democratic platform was in the environmental section. And they talked about convening the states to discuss emission standards and executive orders around emission standards. The level of detail in the environmental policy section of this platform is extraordinary. And I think if you are interested in this policy in particular, it's worth your time to look at it. You can tell a lot of energy was spent here. But I appreciate that specificity about just putting us on notice. We're going to do some climate stuff by executive order. I got my pen ready versus lamenting governance through executive order while simultaneously governing every aspect of this country via executive order until the court steps in and says no nope, not this time.
2: You know, and I just I see these documents and I think about the Republican Party and I try even though I think it is highly unlikely to put myself in a situation where Donald Trump wins a second term. They don't really have any more policy priorities or big ideas. It's just more of the same. Strip the government, strip the government, strip the government.
1: And listen, I mean... Except the military. Except the military. We're going to just keep buying more and more weapons. Right. The only reason that I feel like Ronald Reagan had any sort of
2: vision or what appeared to be a vision is there was just more government to strip when he started. And so what we're seeing play out now is, well, what happens when we've done, we've stripped it, we've stripped it bare, we, we want to strip it bare. And now we don't have anything else to offer. We're going to abandon any sort of debt plans, even though they might still give lip service to that, I think. I mean, and look, I mean, I don't think there's any reason to believe that presenting ideas that are clearly hypocritical based on the first term or antithetical to any sort of administrative policy is going to stop them from saying it during the convention the fact that they did the tax cut it ballooned the deficit doesn't mean that they're not going to stand up and say we still really want to balance budgets because it's not it's only about him and it's only whatever will give service to him so let's just say you play that out he can't serve more than two terms you've stripped the government bare is there no one inside the republican party and we talked about this a lot on the show that says okay but What's next? I mean, they haven't been able to answer the question about what's next after Obamacare. Still no answer. Still no answer. What happens if you strip it out? What are people going to do?
1: And there's just no answer. It's also interesting that some of the good ideas in the Republican platform are things that I think could have been accomplished quickly. Like, if a lot of the reason the Mm. platforms feel unhelpful or irrelevant in some ways is because there is no prioritization. But if if you were taking the RNC platform from 2016 and saying, where could we quickly put some points on the board? There are places. There's a great idea in the platform from the Republicans about appointing a presidential commission to look at the United States Code and all of its regulations and find everything that carries criminal penalties. Because right now, no one knows how many things carry criminal penalties, but we know it's a lot. And so let's make that list and start to clean up the code. Like, let's bring Congress recommendations about how we can have less federal criminal law. If we want less federal incarceration, we get it through less federal criminal law. And I think that's a better idea than a lot of what's in the DNC platform on criminal justice reform, because the DNC platform, as much as it talks about, and it does a lot about reducing incarceration, it also recommends a lot of new federal crime. And so Mm -hmm. I would love to see them do that. Why haven't they done it? They could have rolled it out at the same time as the criminal justice reform bill and said, we just did some good things. The work is not done. We're committed to this. It's the appointment of a commission. He didn't need Congress to do that. He could just do it. That's a really good idea. The Republican platform and the Democratic platform are both extremely supportive of the U.S. territories and of greater rights for the citizens living in those territories. They could get that done. The Republican platform calls for statehood for Puerto Rico. The DNC platform doesn't go that far. They could have gotten that done. You know, they just prioritized the stripping away of everything President Obama did instead of the advancing the agenda that they actually articulated.
2: Well, that's because the they is him, right? The they became him, and he has no policy vision. Heather Cox Richardson put together a email that was like, why is he so obsessed with re-election? I mean, he filed for re-election the day of his inauguration. And one of her theories is, well, part of it is it's paying his legal fees and it keeps him from being indicted. And I thought, man, that's such a good point. Like the obsession with re-election is not about furthering a, a, a policy agenda or a vision for the country. It's about, as it always is, protecting his interests. And I just think that's that's why you don't have a new platform. That's why none of that stuff got done. Uh, never forget his number one top 100 days priority was term limits. And that didn't happen. I stored that one away permanently in my memory because um, I thought, no way Mitch McConnell's going to let you get through term limits. So, I mean, it just because that's not what it's about. That's not what it's ever been about. And it is so incredibly frustrating that not only can his base not see that, but people who care about the long term survival of the Republican Party don't care. Although, you know, I read a great quote from Arthur Brooks that like this stuff turns over quickly. People ran from the Republican Party after Richard Nixon. And and there you had Ronald Reagan not a few years later, people ran from the Democratic Party after Walter Mondale. And there, not a few years later, you had Jimmy Carter. So, I mean, I guess the the real truth is that Americans don't read these policy documents. They make their voting decisions, particularly swing voters, based on emotional arguments. And that this, I mean, this might not be whatever happens in this election, the death of the Republican Party, I certainly hope not. But, you know, just the cyclical nature of party politics and maybe a representation of the fact that those cycles are becoming more extreme, no doubt. But I don't know if it's any sort
1: of long-term impact on the actual party. I don't have feelings about that one way or the other. I, I don't lament that Americans are sort of fickle and willing to move from thing to thing. I think that that's healthy in some ways. It should keep everybody on their toes. It should be. It should pose some accountability. I mean, honestly, that's better to me than that 30% for whom Trump can do no wrong. I would rather that 30% mm-hmm. say, well, now this is this is one too many. Um and I would rather People who are hardcore Democrats be willing to say, and and I think many, many are, especially after this past term, I don't think we'll see again what we saw with Bill Clinton, the sort of, well, he's mostly good, so we give this a pass. Uh, You see all the time a level of accountability in the Democratic Party that Republicans find horrifying, (laughs) you know, so um, I I think that's important that we're willing to shift. I also think these documents are important. I'll tell you, as much as I walked away thinking, whoa, that was a tedious exercise comparing these platforms line by line, it also gave me real appreciation for the people whose names we'll never know who work on this stuff. Yeah. And who are trying to build something bigger than one election cycle and who are clearly learning lessons along the way. I think that we need in our political participation both the people who are sort of tourists of parties. And I take that label on myself, mm-hmm. given where I am today, um, and the people who have a strong affiliation to those groups and are constantly trying to better them. Now, I think bettering is different than just you know, cancer cell, we just keep growing for the sake of growing, uh, which is, I think, a lot of what's happened in the Republican side. But that same article where Arthur Arthur Brooks was talking about the the changes over time mentioned that a lot of these people who have been hardcore Trump said he was a dangerous kook before he was elected and will say after he is out of power that he was a dangerous kook. And that's fine with me. Mm -hmm. Good. Let's move on then. I, I don't trust those people anymore. I don't want them to hold elected office. But I am very pleased. Like when they tell us that was bad, I'll take it. Good. Because I do think we need to be able to shift our opinions and change over time and move on and do better. And I really do have a sense of gratitude for the people within each party quietly working at that objective.
2: I think what wears me out about that, though, I totally agree. We need those people. That's why I think I don't want to move to just a virtual convention. I think the act of people gathering and talking about the ideas and the party platform are really, really important. Um, And it's the truth is the party convention is not just an infomercial, even if it is that for most swing voters who don't stay dialed into politics 100% of the time. I just am afraid that by giving permission for people to check out a couple things happen. One, the opportunity for exploitation based on fear is exceptionally high. To, you know, disingenuously use arguments about abortion or law and order to exploit people's fears who aren't paying that close of attention is really high. And I think, two, you just lose that... Cohesive thread of values. And the really good politicians, I think, like Barack Obama and even Bill Clinton to a certain extent, Jimmy Carter, Cory Booker comes to mind, for example, like that can, they can do that. They can dial in quickly and say, hey, what are we about? There are bigger issues here. But I just worry so often it just becomes pure self interest. Like, well, what's the economic argument? That's all that matters to me. And we lose that thread of there's something bigger here than the government just protecting your. Narrow economic interest, you know, and the same the same thread like you you get in situations where people are so caught up in something like abortion, they lose all vision of their own economic interest. You know, like I just I think that when it's this this quick hit of emotion every four years and people check out the rest of the time. We can't have that continued conversation, which I really think we're in the midst of right now because COVID doesn't allow people to check out and the racial reckoning doesn't allow people to check out, of what are we about? Why are we here? What are we doing? Do we want to do it together? Like, what? what is this? What's going on? And I think that that conversation is really important and that focus is really important and that that really narrowing in on our values as party as a Democratic Party or Republican Party can get that conversation started. And I just wanted to continue on a national level. That's why I think the the Democratic Party is in a powerful position because we right now, because we contain so much like it can't just be the party activists right now because the party is holding so much. And I think that's why you saw at the convention such a powerful conversation about what are we doing? Because we're having to talk to everyone from the new Democrat <laughs> Never Trumper, whatever to centrist Republicans, to centrist Democrats, to progressives, we have to have that conversation. We don't have a choice because so many people are there, and I don't want that conversation to die. And I want it to continue. And I, the people who are seeing what happens when we all dial out for a while, or we don't vote, or we don't pay attention, like I don't, I just don't want that to happen again. Well, I'm a hundred
1: percent not advocating for people checking out. I think it's different to be attentive and in conversation than doing that party building work, though. And I don't think that party building work is for everyone. I don't think there's a risk, at least for the next couple of years, that people can dial out because we've got a next couple of Mm. years that are going to be a lot. And I don't think the climate is going to allow us to check out again. I, I mean, I do think we are in a position where more people are having these conversations than ever before. And that's a good thing. And it should continue. I hope more of us can do that from a place of curiosity and from a place of re-examination of things that we always thought were true. Does this still work? Is this important to me? What priority does this have in the way that I vote and communicate? Uh, I'm pushing harder in conversations than I ever have. You know, I was having a discussion with a listener of ours who I really respect. And we are in very different places on a lot of things. And abortion kept coming up as well as the Second Amendment. And I said, I don't understand how we can talk about protecting the unborn from this threat in one sentence and in the next talk about how we should have no regulation of guns whatsoever. So all of us who are living should walk around with that constant threat around us. And that's harder than I normally would have pushed because I think the time calls for that. And I can do that and still say, I like and respect this person. Does it get my blood pressure going a little bit? Absolutely. Uh, But I want to be in those conversations. I want to challenge myself along every dimension. And I hope lots of people are doing that. And I see it. Um, I put a Biden filter on my Facebook profile picture. And one of my neighbors reached out and said, can I ask you why you'd vote for him? She said, I'm not attacking you. I just want to understand. And I was like, great, good. Then that's, that's the reason to do this. Like, just to say, I am open for discussion. Come talk to me about it. So I totally agree with you on all of that. And I don't know what's going to happen with the parties, but I'm just holding them loosely right now because that's all I know how to do. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a Wrinkle Support Skin Supplement Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you.
2: Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both.
1: Is there a policy idea that you are like most jazzed about in the Democratic platform? You know, I don't know if it's one
2: policy proposal. Listen, I get really passionate about lots of things. I get lot really passionate about childcare. I get really passionate about subsidized childcare and paid parental leave in particular. But for me, you know, the last few years have crystallized even more that the government has a very active role to play in making sure the American economy serves everybody. And that's the thread that runs through a lot of parts of these policy proposals, that runs through a lot of these policy proposals from childcare to student loans to, I mean, even like boring stuff like banking, certainly affordable housing. Like I just, this idea that The government always makes things worse. I'm just done with it. I'm just done with it. We're seeing what happens when the the government is absent. And I think that there is such a role through policy for the, the federal government, state governments, local governments, but particularly the federal government to step in and say, this playing field has been unequal for a long time and it's time to start doing the work again of making sure that this government that represents all of us makes sure the economy serves all of us. And, you know, I had this kind of aha moment that I wanted to share with you because I thought, I wonder what Beth will think about this. But I'm like, when I'm thinking about this platform, I'm thinking about the idea that we don't always strip the government away, but that the government comes in and does. You know, it puts its hands on the scales, um, whether it's research and innovation or um, protecting the middle class, making sure working families um, have the resources they need to thrive. I thought I was thinking about that in relationships to QAnon, and I thought, you know, the best way to deal with QAnon and the proliferation of these conspiracy theories is to give people a role in the economy again, like to really address income inequality, to really chip away at these inequities and at unemployment and a lack of educational opportunities. And just this idea that I'm I'm being crushed under a system that seems rigged. And the manifestation of that is, well, tell me a story about how it's rigged that I like. And I just thought, man, if we can just unrig a small portion of the system, there's a part of me that thinks, well, they'll just stop listening. They'll have other options. They won't have to spend hours on the internet finding a story that makes them feel better about how the system is crushing them. They won't be crushed anymore. They'll have other things to do, right? Their load will be lightened. And instead of shaming or, you know, trying to put a Band-Aid on this gaping wound, let's just lighten the load so they stop looking for an explanation. I think there's a lot of
1: truth and wisdom in what you just said. I also am not sure. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, just to be candid, I'm not sure how much an economic shift on the proportion that you're describing, which is a big one that would impact a lot of people. I'm not sure how much it will do to get at some of what seems to animate the QAnon folks And this party platform, let's be for real. And this party platform, even though Mark Meadows just has never heard of those QAnon guys. I think that a part of me is coming to grips with something you say all the time and I am just internalizing, which is that we're just never going to have everybody on the same page. And I think we are always going to have conspiracy theorists. We've always had them. I think we're always going to have some white supremacists. I hope it is not the dominant cultural force, but I think there will always be some people who are there. I think we are always going to have religious extremists. We are always going to have problems to solve because of people looking to get needs met through a very destructive vehicle. And at the same time, I do feel hopeful that those options will be attractive To the vast majority of Americans, if we can improve the sense of trust and confidence they have toward government, cultural institutions, communities, I think we can do a lot better than we're doing right now. That's honestly why, for me, the most exciting part of this platform is the section on a Voting Rights Act and Mm -hmm. other principles around making voting more trustworthy, more accessible More transparent. If Joe Biden and Kamala Harris got nothing else done, that would feel pretty good to me because that feels like a domino that could tip a lot of other dominoes. And I think that's what you're saying about Mm -hmm. income inequality. I agree with you. That's a domino that I think could tip a lot of other dominoes too. And that's really what I'm looking for from leadership right now someone who says, you know what? This is the first block. And that's what I'm going to direct my energy at.
2: You know, there is a lot of chatter. That Joe Biden, because of his age, because he'll probably only serve two terms because there's a decent chance that the House and Senate could go to that, it could be like a really transformative presidency in the way that Obama and Clinton and all these people have always tried to get at. And I keep thinking about that cycle you talk about, that you found the historian who describes the sort of phases we've gone through with FDR and Lyndon Johnson, Reagan dismantling it, and then maybe coming to the end of the Reagan individualistic phase. And, I mean, I I feel like when you read the party platforms, it sure does seem to support that phase and the fact that we're coming to the end of one big phase
1: and about to enter another very big phase. I think that's probably right. I think that Trump is probably the grand finale of a certain section of our history. Mm -hmm. And I know that saying that makes a lot of people really nervous I think that's going to happen no matter who wins this election, though. You know, we are, we are going to experience massive shifts in our lifetime. We already have and we will again. And so we got to develop some resilience about that instead of just hunkering down in the sense of we have to preserve everything the way that it is because life is not life is not allowing that for us. And for me, with what life is presenting right now, I am thrilled to have someone talking again about relying on each other. And I am thrilled Mm -hmm. to hear a little bit of a sense of sacrifice. You know, I do not agree with Joe Biden on a national mask mandate, okay? I think that is a terrible idea. But what I appreciate is hearing him talk about it in terms of doing something for your neighbor. Because I haven't heard a president talk like that in a long while, and I'm ready for that. I'm ready for that sort of ask not what your country can do for you ethic, because I think we've gotten so far from that. And it's it's even like ask not what your church can do for you. Ask not what your school can do for you. Knights yep. White Parents has me like convicted about schools in that way. There are so many things where I think I've always just asked what they can do for me and I'm ready to shift that now. Mm-hmm. And And I hope that more of us are in that space. Beth, what's on your mind outside politics? I get a lot of feedback about our conversation about white chocolate, which affirms for me (laughs) that we are all in a stressed space. Perhaps many of us are dealing with that stress by eating our feelings, as I have a tendency to do. And so I'm going to stick with the light and breezy junk food theme today and tell you about maple cream Oreo cookies. Have you had one of these, Sarah?
2: I saw your post on Instagram. I am incredibly skeptical, but I am—I think you're wrong, but I'm listening. That's what I'm trying to say.
1: I came in with great skepticism as well because my husband does all of our grocery shopping. He believes there's a correct way to grocery shop, and so he just does that now. Mm-hmm. I don't want to talk to him anymore about the Beth tax that he says I impose when I go to the grocery store. Like, it's just, I just, <laughs> if he believes there's a right way to do it and he can do it, he can have it. So, Even though I am accused of a Beth tax, he brings home some real bizarre things from the snack food aisle. And he brought home these maple cream Oreos. And I looked at him in utter disgust. Because I think the best thing about an Oreo is the chocolatey cookie. And these are vanilla cookies with maple cream inside. But I had one. And I'm here to tell you that the maple cream was delicious. It was delicious. It is not an Oreo, but it is yummy. And so...
2: Let's just let's just say, oh, he brought home maple cream Correct. sandwich cookies. And Correct. then I'm in. Then I'm like, yeah, that sounds fun. Cool. Fun times.
1: But I am not going to end there because in service to this community, I Frankensteined that cookie. I put the maple cream center between two honest to God Oreos. And it was delicious, too. Yes, I know.
2: No. No, chocolate and maple don't go the maple together. maple
1: really overpowers the chocolate. What it gave me an understanding of is that the chocolate in Oreos is a very light flavor of chocolate. But they did yeah, work together well, true. and it was a true maple cream Oreo. Whew.
2: I don't know about that. Um, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to tell you right now. I'm not going to do that. Well,
1: the next time I see you, I'd be happy to make one for you. I picked them apart very carefully oh. so that I could conduct this experiment, and it was better.
2: Mm. I don't I don't know. Well, I have an exciting update. My floor was fixed without ripping up the entire tile and getting to redo it. Dylan, can we insert some sort of celebratory noise here? Thank you. I I held it loosely. Did the universe reward me for my Zen approach to this? Maybe. I don't know. No, it didn't because I don't believe the universe works like that. But... I am happy to say that we had to remove some tile, but not all the tile. And it is working and it is lovely to go and do yoga on my delightfully toasty floor and to have that project almost done. I'm so excited about my new bathroom, but it has reinforced the realization that I hate any and all renovation. I like quick, breezy home improvement projects. Let's get a new lamp. Let's reupholster a chair. I do not like big renovation projects. I find them incredibly stressful. I don't like all the decision making. And then it's like the the stakes are so high. And then when it's done, even though I really love it, it's like you're so invested. You start noticing everything like, oh, I think that handles a little crooked. Or you know what I mean? And I won't know. I know from my kitchen that I won't notice that stuff in like six months. But man, there's just there's just a part of this process that is it does not suit me. I do not enjoy it. I'm so happy it's over. And I, I love, love, love Not that I'm not taking showers in a teeny tiny 1994 mildew
1: pod. But um, Lord, it's stressful. Kitchen and bathroom is tough because those are just, you know, des- it's a lot of decisions. It's such a central part of your use of your home. And especially while we're all in our homes yes. all the time, it's a tough time to all do the it. Time. I'm so glad for all you time. that it's about done. Mm-hmm.
2: So I'm excited. It's wrapping up today, the very first day of in-person instruction, of course. But so far, even the in-person instruction um, is going really well. And I did, for those of you who don't follow us on Instagram or social, I did want to share my approach to the beginning of school, which is we're not going to call it the first day of school, you guys. We're going to call it the first month of school. Because when you call it the first day of school, you feel this pressure to get it right, You're like, well, I got to have all the supplies. I got to have all the apps installed. I must not encounter any technological difficulties with virtual instruction. Everything has to be perfect. I feel that pressure on myself about the first day of school. And so we're just going to release that. We're just going to call the first month of school, maybe the first semester of school, uh, TBD. But I just think that's a healthier kind of mindset. It's it's making me ease the pressure on myself.
1: I invite you guys to do the same. I think it's a good approach, except that... I definitely have compensated for all of the guilt, stress, and worry that I feel about COVID and its effect on my children by purchasing pencils. We have such an abundance of school supplies here that I feel like the first day of school needs to carry a little significance because I have spent a lot of time getting ready for it.
2: (laughs) No, that's fine. You have enough pencils for the entire first month. See? I see that shift. Now your pencil looks like perfect. Well, look, you're set for the first month of school. Look at all your pencils. See? See?
1: I hope that you all are set as well, and we will be enjoying hearing from you about your school experiences and everything else going on with you. We'll be with you on The Nuance Life on Wednesday, on Hot Mike, on Thursday, back here again Friday. So much pantsuit politics in your life this week. We hope you enjoy it all. Thank you for being with us. Keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsy Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast
2: Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Dante Lima is the composer and performer
1: of our theme music. Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tim Miller, Tiffany Hasler, Joshua Allen,
0: David McWilliams,
2: Allie
1: Edwards, Martha Brunitsky, Amy Whited, Janice Elliott,
0: Sarah Ralph,
2: Barry Kaufman, Jeremy Sequoia,
0: Lori Lodow, Emily Neasley. Allison Luzader, Tracy Putoff, Julie
2: Haller, Jared Minson. To support pantsuit politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics.
1: You can connect with us on our website pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails and follow us on Instagram.